Mark chapter 11, we'll be reading the entire chapter. This is God's word spoken to you. Please hear it as such. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple. And began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priest and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look! The fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. 
And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priest and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? For they were afraid of the people. For they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. The flower fades, the grass withers, but the word of the Lord stands forever. You may be seated. Well, please do keep your Bibles open. It is helpful to refer to as we work our way uh, through uh, this passage. And as we uh, consider these things, let us turn to our Heavenly Father in prayer. Good and gracious Father, it is good to come into your temple of people. We are thankful, Father, that you still speak to us through your word. And we are thankful for the word that you have given us today in Mark 11. We pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would equip us to hear what it is that you want to say to us, to encourage us, to strengthen us, to admonish us. Father, I pray that you would hide the man and glorify your son. May we see Jesus more clearly. For we ask it in his name, believing in his power. Amen. Well, it is good to be back in the Gospel of Mark as Pastor Harrison has been faithfully leading us through this series in Mark on Christ and his kingdom. Now, no doubt, if you have been under the preaching of the word for any uh, length of time, or perhaps in your own personal reading, the stories that we just read are fairly familiar passages. But though they are familiar, they are often misunderstood, and I dare say, sadly, misapplied. This may be because we often consider these accounts in individual silos instead of the cohesiveness of the entire passage. And throughout his gospel, Mark has a very quick tempo that is somewhat abrupt and uh, has a staccato style that can make it a little bit challenging. Just chapters 1 through 10 span the length of three years. But now we are going to slow down the pace greatly as the last six chapters are only going to cover the last week of Jesus's earthly ministry. Uh, certainly, there, there is great benefit, and, and we do well to uh, dig deep into the text and to see all of uh, the, the nuances that that passage can bring us. But really our goal today that I've set out for us is to consider this, this passage at large, not to necessarily exhaust 
the chapter. We, we want to look at the big picture idea that Mark is trying to communicate. And so the main idea of our text in front of us, and it could be stated different ways, but the main idea is that God requires true religion. God requires true religion. Now, understandably, uh, some of you may be bristling at that word religion. I mean, it's a loaded term, right? Uh, What exactly does that mean? Doesn't God want a relationship with me more than my religiosity? Well, that's certainly true. Indeed, he does. Uh, But I mean only really the general definition of the word. In other words, God requires true living faith and worship. And so with that qualifier, look at me at chapter 11 to, to help us see this. And I I want to paint a little bit of a visual picture here. I want you to think of this chapter much like we are going to walk up one side of the mountain and then down the other side. So verses 1 through 14 are the ascent. Verses 15 through 19 is the summit of the mountain with verse 17 being the apex. And then verses 20 through 33 is the descent. Now, if we are to name our trails as we hike, the theme of the ascent would be false religion condemned. False religion condemned. And on the descent, we are going to see true religion contrasted. So now that we have this uh, mental uh, picture in view, uh, we have three points that I have for us to help us Uh, work through this message. I I don't know that uh, my uh, three points are as uh, winsome as what uh, Pastor comes up with, but uh, the first is the king's destination. The king's destination. The second is the prophet's parable and prosecution. And the third is the Messiah's authority. Well, let's look at verses 1 through 11, the king's destination. With the recent passing of Queen Elizabeth, the world got to witness all the pomp and circumstance that accompanies the coronation of a new monarch, in this case, King Charles II. And a significant part of that ceremony is the grand procession of the king to Westminster Abbey. Now, the passage today uh, does not have necessarily all that extravagant pomp, but it certainly did serve a regal purpose. You see, throughout the gospel, Mark is showing the reader how exactly Jesus fulfilled the messianic promises, the, the prophecies of the Old Testament. And here we see the prophet Zacharias as he records Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, the people in Jesus' day longed for a Messiah. But their desire for that long-awaited Davidic king was not necessarily 
to be saved from the consequences of their sin so much as really a desired deliverance from the Roman iron rule and their crushing taxes. And this is why the the people shouted Psalm 118, verses 25 through 26, that served as our call to worship today. Hosanna, which literally means, please save. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. See, now you understand why it is that coming into Jerusalem was so important. Jerusalem was the seat of power. It was the center of religious life. It is Jerusalem that harbored all of the messianic expectations and hopes. And so people are on the byways waving their palm branches, which were nationalistic symbols of victory. They put their cloaks on the ground, symbolizing their submission to the king. And while the crowd's vision of what the Messiah would be doing was woefully too small, their identification of who the Messiah was was spot on. You note Jesus' response here. He doesn't correct their praise. He doesn't direct it elsewhere. He doesn't tell them to be quiet. The people were right to acknowledge him as the coming king. They were right to praise him as the son of David. But Jesus has a purpose in coming to Jerusalem. The king has a destination. I mean, logically, one would expect that if a king had come to the center of the political power of his kingdom, his next stop would be the palace, his throne room. But where did Ezekiel tell us that God's throne is? In the temple. Look at verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. You see, Jesus isn't coming as a casual Passover pilgrim. He is coming as the sovereign Lord to survey the religion of his people. Malachi prophesied about this. He said, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like a fuller's soap. God had given his people, Israel, good things. He had given them the law and the ceremonies and and the promises to continually remind them of what was pleasing to him, of the severity of their sin, of the need for a once-for-all sacrifice, a need for a savior to be their mediator. And, And had they sought after God with sincere hearts, they would have recognized the Messiah in their midst. 
But instead of true religion leading people in faith to true worship of Yahweh, Jesus finds a corrupt system, creating barriers to God and legalistic and cumbersome rules. And this brings us to our second point, the prophets' parable and prosecution. Now, kids, one of the shows that our family likes to watch is the Kids Baking Championship. Uh, Talented kids compete in a variety of uh, fun and various baking challenges, and a a favorite episode every season is the Dessert Imposter Challenge. This challenge is to make a sweet treat masquerade as a savory dish. Now, an example of what this would look like is a uh, yummy hamburger slider that is actually a vanilla cupcake with brownie as the patty and red licorice made to look like the tomato and some painted coconut flakes as your lettuce. Now, I know that may sound silly, but it it really is amazing how realistic these things can look. But imagine your disappointment if when you are hungry and your mouth is watering for that savory burger that you take a bite and you get a mouthful of sugar. Well, the next two verses are a similar scenario. Jesus and the disciples were lodging outside of Jerusalem in Bethany, likely at the home of Mary and Martha and and Lazarus. And, And he and the disciples are back on their way into Jerusalem. And Mark notes that Jesus was hungry. And so seeing a fig tree in leaf, he goes to the tree expecting to find fruit, but he finds none. And so he curses the tree in the hearing of his disciples. Now, on the surface, this can, this can be a difficult passage. I mean, at best, it seems like a random, kind of out-of-place story. What does this have to do with the rest of the stories around it. And at worst, Jesus comes across as capricious, using divine power to curse an innocent fig tree because, well, in our vernacular, he was hangry? I mean, since Jesus was the Son of God, would he have not known that it was not the season for figs? Well, This encounter with the fig tree and then its subsequent explanation brackets the summit of the mountain of our passage that we illustrated earlier, Jesus cleansing the temple. And Mark includes this because it serves as a prophetic illustration or an enacted parable. And this is not unique. God often had his prophets enact real-time, real-life events to help illustrate what it was that God was speaking to his people. Take, for instance, Isaiah going and registering his son's name, and when he would be a certain age, it would indicate the Assyrian invasion. Or Jeremiah being told to go purchase a parcel of land, indicating that God would return a remnant of the exile. Or Hosea, 
who continually goes after his faithless wife, Gomer, illustrating God's relentless love for his idolatrous people. Now Mark begins by cluing in the reader that Jesus wanted food. The incarnate son was hungry. And seeing the fig tree in the distance, he sees that it is in leaf. It has the appearance of fulfilling his need, his desire. You see, figs come into their full foliage at the time that they produce the fruit. Now, too much, too much ink has been spilt on why Jesus would have thought the fig tree held the hope of fruit when it was not the season. It is possible that he was seeking an immature yet edible fruit called a pagim that travelers would sometimes eat. It's possible that he thought this may have been a a different type or a less common variety that produces figs in the early spring in Palestine. But regardless, the point is that it had the outward appearance of having fruit from a distance. But upon close inspection, it proved deceptive. And void. And Jesus' curse intentionally pronounced in the hearing of his disciples foreshadows the Messiah's coming actions. So this brings us to verse 15. Again, note here that his destination is the temple. Now, the temple in Jesus' day was a massive complex. Sometimes I, I think we underestimate just how massive it was. It covered 36 acres on the grounds. And the outermost court of the temple complex was the court of the Gentiles. And this was a place where those people who were not of Israel could come and learn of God and worship him. Well, God had given specifically his covenant to Abraham and his offspring, his redemptive work through his people, Israel, were meant to be a blessing to all the nations, ultimately including the foreigner in the covenantal promises and blessings. But Israel failed miserably in her mission almost immediately upon settling the promised land, God's people prostituted themselves to their neighbors' foreign gods instead of taking the truth of Yahweh to them. And so now the court of the Gentiles, meant to be a place for the foreigner to come to God, has become a place in inflated commerce, essentially barring the Gentiles from a place to worship. Now this court was also massive. If if you can envision this, the court extended over five football fields in length. And so throughout the year, and especially at the time of the Passover, pilgrims would come from all over the known world to Jerusalem to offer their sacrifices. But Arduous long journeys didn't make bringing your sacrificial animal very practical. 
And so there was a need to buy your animal for sacrifice that met all the requirements on the spot. And this made for a lucrative opportunity. The religious leaders, likely in coalition with the wealthy, operated the large sums of temple money as a bank, requiring their currency to be used in these transactions and charging exorbitant fees and interest. And so when Jesus comes to survey the religious center of Israel, he does not find true religion in practice. Rather, he finds a manufactured, false religion that bars people from worshiping God and abuses the poor and the outcast. What is the Lord's response? Like the fruitless fig tree, he brings judgment on their false religion. He overturns the tables, he upsets their operations, and he drives them out. Mark's narrative climaxes in verse 17 with the righteous judge quoting the prophet Isaiah, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. If we're honest with ourselves, there's probably a part of us at this point who are internally cheering The bad guys are getting what they deserve. But we need to be careful. And we need not to lose the shock of Jesus' actions. Why didn't Jesus go to one of the foreign nations whose false religion was more blatantly obvious? Why didn't he condemn the, the Roman pagan polytheism with all its immoral filth. Instead, the sovereign Lord comes to his people and renders judgment on the religion they had created. Externally, sure, it it had the appearance of piety, but like the desert imposter, it was something else entirely. And this should serve as a warning to us all. I mean, all too easy, we can take the free offer of the gospel and decide who should or who should not hear it. We take even the good things God has given us in the church to continually point us to Christ, and we make idols of them. We trust in things such as our church attendance or our service to others, or our prayers, or our offerings, or perhaps belonging to what we think is the right denomination. You see, all of these things are Jesus plus something. Jesus plus my attendance. Jesus plus my acts of service. But this is a different religion altogether. A false religion. And the Lord condemns it. Well, we have ascended the mountain, seeing false religion 
condemned and like all good hikers, we like the descent better. And so now we will see true religion contrasted as we begin our descent. And the prophet explains that illustration of the fig tree. Verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. In other words, it was completely dead. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look. The fig tree that you cursed has withered. And we need, to, we need to stop here and remember that Peter has been with Jesus for three years by this point. And he has seen some pretty remarkable things. I mean, he witnessed the miraculous catch of fish, the, the feeding of the 5,000, the calming of the storm, the walking on the water, the, the raising of Darius' daughter, even Jesus' transfiguration. Why is it then that he is so amazed to see a tree that has withered? Well, this is the first instance that Peter has witnessed Jesus exercise divine authority and power in judgment. And Peter, probably with the wrong motives, wants to know how he can get that power. But Jesus' answer is unexpected, right? Have faith in God. I can just envision Peter's confused look. Well, Jesus, of course, I know we are supposed to have faith in God, but what I want to know is how did you do that? Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass... It will be done for him. Sadly, we have now come to one of the most abused verses in all of Scripture. Many have used these verses to teach that if you just have enough faith, God will do what you ask. If you have enough faith, God will heal you. If you have enough faith, God will heal your loved one. If you just speak your desires in faith, God will give it to you. Claim that lucrative job. Claim that person you want to marry, that child you want to have, that home you desire. Just have enough faith, and God will grant you your desires. James, chapter 4, verse 3, helps us to rightly understand Jesus' explanation. He said, You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Jesus' command here to have faith in God is to be understood as a a general trust, a confidence in God's power and his wisdom and his goodwill toward his children. 
You see, far from the teaching of the prosperity gospel movement, it is not the quantity of your faith. It is not the quality of your faith. It is the object of your faith. The faith of many people that say, well, I have faith. It goes nowhere because it is not set upon God. And the disciples would have understood the command to move a mountain as a Jewish metaphor for the impossible. In other words, Jesus is saying that we are to ask and trust God with a living faith, confident that he will accomplish the seemingly impossible according to his will. Verse 24. Therefore, I tell you, Jesus continues, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Now, Jesus' use of therefore signals that what he is about to say is the logical extension of the truth that he just commanded. In other words, have faith in God to accomplish according to his will that which seems impossible. And it is here that we are going to see what characterizes true religion, contrasted with that of the religious leaders. And Jesus points out two things, trusting prayer and a forgiving spirit. God desired for his temple to be a house of prayer. But the religious leaders had turned it into a den of robbers. Jesus shows us that the fruit of true religion is trusting prayer. It is not a coincidence that what he condemns in the temple, he shows to the disciples what is needed. True and trusting prayer, emphasizing the believer's vertical relationship with their Heavenly Father. And then second, while we pray, we are to have a forgiving spirit. How is it, how can we possibly enter into God's holy presence in prayer, knowing the magnitude of forgiveness that we have received in Christ and not quickly forgive others the trespasses that they have committed against us. Unlike the temple system that created barriers towards others who are different or who have wronged us, forgiveness is a fruit of true religion manifested in our horizontal relationships with our neighbors. I wonder if James had Jesus' words here in mind when he says in his epistle, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit the orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. I want to be 
immensely clear here. So if you've tuned out, please tune back in. Jesus is not saying that you have to have fruit in your life to have true religion. That puts the cart before the horse. Rather, he is saying that true religion is characterized by the presence of fruit that flows from true and living faith and worship of God. Do you remember the greatest command? Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus responds, we are to love the Lord our God, the vertical relationship, with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength, and our neighbor, our horizontal relationship, as ourselves. So that brings us to our final point, the Messiah's authority. Another day has passed. We've covered three days in this passage. Another day has passed, and again, Jesus finds himself in the temple. And have you noticed the repetition of the similar phrasing in verses 11, 15, and then here again in 27? With each new day, Jesus comes to Jerusalem, but goes specifically where? To the temple. Now, likely from their plotting that we were clued into in verse 18, the chief priest and the scribes and the elders come to Jesus with a question, hoping to entrap him. They ask, by what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? Now, in the immediate context, the religious leaders here are referring to the cleansing of the temple, but certainly their question pertained to all of Jesus' ministry. I mean, They were the ones in charge, and they knew that they had not given him any license of authority. But the Son of God knew their motivation, and his response exposes the true loyalty of their heart. Using a a common rabbinical uh, method of debate, Jesus answers their question with a question. Was the baptism of John, John the Baptist in view here, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? In an instant, the leaders realize that their trap has been turned on them. If they answered that John's baptism was from man's authority, they would lose face with the people who believe that John the Baptist was a true prophet from God. But if they acknowledged that John's authority came from God, the next logical question is, well, why didn't you believe? Why didn't you repent? Why weren't you baptized? And perhaps even more importantly, if they believe that John's authority is from heaven, they have to believe that Jesus' is from the same place because John prophesied of Jesus. And so they give a cop-out answer. They lied. We don't know. You see, what they truly feared was losing their position. They feared the response of man and not the response of God. 
they did not want to submit to him. True religion is characterized by trusting and submitting to God's authority over all of our lives, even when it may be contrary to the things that we want. The late Dr. Jim Boyce used to give this illustration about a hiker that was walking along the edge of a cliff, and he slipped precariously on some loose rocks, and he fell down the cliff face, and he's frantically grasping for anything that might give him purchase, and he grabs on to a small branch coming out of the cliff face, and the, the branch is starting to come out. And he looks down, and he's still hundreds of feet above the ground. And he looks up to heaven, and he says, Hello, is anyone up there? I could really use some help right now. And a voice responds out of heaven, Yes, someone is up here, and I am willing to help you. But you have to trust me. Let go. Is there anybody else up there? You see, we often are okay submitting to God's plan as long as it's our plan. God's own son, just two days from now in our passage, on the eve of his crucifixion, prayed that the cup of suffering and death he was about to drink would be taken from him. But what Jesus desired more than what he wanted was his obedience to his heavenly Father's will. Therefore, let us not place our trust in anything that we do or anything that we achieve, and so create our own false religion, it will be judged. But rather, let us have true religion, submitting to God in all things and trusting in him who has, because of his good and perfect will, done the impossible by removing our sin in Christ. May it be so of us all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, indeed you have given us many good things. But we are idol factories. We so quickly take your good gifts and make them into something that they are not. Please forgive us. May your temple, your people, be a praying people knowing that you can accomplish far more than we could ever ask or think. Let us be bold with the good news of the gospel to all the nations, 
Would you bring people unto yourself? Father, I pray that your spirit would cause us to meditate on these words and its implications as we go from here. And as we come to receive the bread and the wine, may it nourish us, proclaiming to us the death and resurrection of our Savior. For it's in him that we have the good news that it is finished. In Christ's name, we pray and believe. Amen.